Hear God's word now as we find it in Psalm 124, a song of ascent of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please be seated. When I was uh, about 19, maybe 20, uh, I, I nearly lost my life in a car accident. Uh, it was late, uh, and I was tired and not paying attention, as I should have, and I pulled out of a, a country intersection directly in front of a moving truck. I never saw the headlights until it was too late to get out of the way, and there their pickup truck slammed into my pickup truck right behind the driver's side door. And my truck did a 180 in the middle of the intersection, and theirs ended up in a ditch. And when everything finally came to a stop and I caught my breath, I pried open the door and I stepped out to check on uh, the other driver. And thankfully, in, in God's kindness, nobody was injured, though it very easily could have gone in another direction. The truck that I was driving belonged to my father. He was happy about that. Uh, and, and in a few days, the insurance company arranged for him to see the damage. Uh, the damage was pretty extensive. The, the bed, as well as the rear axle, were both ripped off the frame, and the frame was a mangled mess. And, and the collision was so close to the cab that the door that I somehow managed to get open never closed again. And my father brought pictures from the junkyard to show me what I had walked away from. And I found it very hard to take more than a passing glance at those pictures. It wasn't, it wasn't quite that I didn't want to be reminded of my mistake, although that might have been part of it. But it was more that, that those pictures were evidence. They were proof. A painful reminder that in that intersection, I came maybe six inches from a wheelchair or, or maybe worse. Maybe you've had close calls like that yourself. Maybe an accident that left you wondering why God was merciful. Maybe it was some other physical thing, and maybe it was like an accident, but almost in slow motion, something that felt more like a 10-month-long train wreck before everything came to a halt. And at the end, you were wondering, you were frightened to think how close you came to either being in a casket or standing next to one. Maybe your accident, if we could call it that, maybe your accident was, was a relational accident. Maybe a spiritual one. Maybe it was a sin with, with all of its consequences that exploded in ways that you couldn't have imagined and almost undid you and your faith. And if you've been inches from physical or spiritual disaster, it can be hard to take a good long look at the pictures. It can be difficult and uncomfortable to consider what might have been if things had been different. That's exactly what this psalm is about. This psalm uh, is about looking disaster square in the face. It's about taking stock 
of the near misses and the close calls that the Lord has worked in the life of his people. It's not for the sake of, of being macabre or, or morose or preoccupied with, uh, w- with depressing things. That's not it at all. The reason that believers, Christians especially, should take time and look back and consider what are the close calls the Lord has brought you through so that we would learn to trust him more and more because uh, the best way sometimes to get uh, a further confidence, greater trust in the God of our future is to consider the way that he has already delivered us in our past. So in this psalm, David is calling the people of God, he's calling the gathered church, let Israel say, he calls us. Let the gathered church consider, give thought to the Lord who helps us. The God who delivers his people from the jaws of death. There are roughly two halves to this passage. The first one uh, is focused on destruction, or at least near destruction. And the second half is focused on deliverance. And what we find in this passage, it is, it is the Lord, says David. The Lord is the one who makes the difference between destruction and deliverance. Now, in the first half, in the first five verses, David begins with this logical argument, and it's a logical argument with two steps. Step one is if not, and step two is then what? If you're more intellectual, maybe you'll give it a a better sounding uh, phraseology. Maybe you'll call it uh, step one is a negative premise, step two is a probable outcome, whatever you want to call it. Step one is, is, uh, is if not, what if? And step two, then what? If the Lord had not been for us, then what would have become of our nation? It's like one of those experiments that that has a control, and you only deal in changing one variable at a time, so you can see exactly what that one variable does to all the effects of the, the experiment that you're working. Well, David is saying, consider changing one variable, and one variable only, all other things being equal. Consider the effect of our lives and our people If the Lord had not been on our side, if not, if the Lord had not been for us, imagine the difference that would have been if only the Lord had not been on our side, if his hand and his protection had not been with you. Of course, that's the variable that makes a difference. Humanity likes to imagine that we are the masters of our own ship, the captain of our own fate. And you can ask Robert Frost, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I I took the one last traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And yeah, there are consequences to our actions. We make real decisions. We, We need wisdom as we work our way through the world, but those who know the Bible, who understand the the message of Scripture, know that our lives and our souls, our very existence, are in the hand of the Lord who made us. And our great hope can never be in our bootstraps or our decisions or in our potential. Our hope is in the God of creation, because if the God of creation is for us, then who can be against us? But then again, what if? What if God had not been on our side? He gathers you in. Let Israel now say, let's consider together, let's reason together, let's consider the outcome. Where would we be if it were possible? Perish the thought but think through it anyway, where would we be if it were possible for God to abandon his people? If the Lord had not been for us, well then what? 
pretty dark conclusion. Essentially, he says, if the Lord had not been for us, we would have been sunk. We would have been swallowed up. We would have been swept away. We would have been consumed by the fire of our enemies. Apart from the Lord, his people face destruction. This is our first point to cover the first half. Apart from the Lord, God's people face destruction. Without him, we're sunk. Now, as with many of the Psalms, we don't know the specific potential destruction that David is talking about here. But we do know that it, it's some sort of national tragedy where they were on the brink of annihilation at the hands of their enemies. He talks about men and their anger against us. And when they rose up against us, there's some point in, in Israel's history that he's talking about, the enemies of Israel against the people of God. It's the perfect description of Israel at the Exodus. And they're there standing on the shoreline while Pharaoh's armies are charging at them from behind. And in front of them, the Red Sea stretched out from horizon to horizon as far as their eyes can see. And they're trapped. And there's nowhere to go. It's the perfect description, perhaps, of Israel under Joshua. When after the Red Sea and after the wilderness wanderings, the Lord sent them into the promised land to drive out peoples greater and more numerous than they, says the Lord. It could have been Israel before the Lord called Gideon when the Midianite raiders would come in and they would ravage the land and they'd leave no food, no flock untouched. And the Israelites began to crawl like spiders into holes in the ground. They began to thresh out their grain in, in the secret strongholds. It could have been a description of Israel at the time of David and his reign and his, his ascendancy as king over all of Israel. And 2 Samuel chapter 5 tells us that as soon as they put the throne, the, uh, as soon as they put David on the throne and the crown on his head, the Philistines gathered together in mass to try and devour the people. Actually, this is the regular and repeated history of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, if the Lord had not been on their side when people rose up against them, they would have been swallowed alive by the anger of their enemies. It would have been like those nature documentaries when they suddenly switch to slow motion. And you see the seal and it's jumping frantically and swimming and leaping above the waves and, and it's trying to get somewhere and then you see that 18 foot great white shark splash out of the surface and you see its eyes roll back and its teeth lurch forward and if that shark can get anywhere near that seal, there's no hope. It would have been like that. They would have swallowed us alive, says David. One gulp, that's all it takes would have been like the waves of a tsunami. And you can still get on YouTube and you can see these terrifying videos. Horrifying videos of 2004 in Indonesia. And the wall of water sweeping away villages. And it's carrying away buildings. And it's carrying away buses. And it's carrying away 170,000 human lives. It would have been like that, says David. If the Lord had not been on our side, the floodwaters would have swept us away. The torrent would have taken us over. That's what it would have been like. Men would have swallowed up us up alive. The flood would have swept us away. And we can point to example after example throughout the history of the Old Testament to prove the same point, that apart from the Lord, his people face destruction. 
And the same is true for the church of Christ throughout the ages. What would have become of the gospel if the enemies of Christ would have been allowed to open their jaws and swallow Jesus' bride like a frightened seal? Can you imagine how long the church might have lasted? Here come 12 blue-collar apostles, and they're preaching one crucified Savior. And in the other corner, all of the nepotism, all of the political machinery that comprised the Jewish ruling class of the first century. Can you imagine the carnage? If nature would have taken its course, in a sense. Could you imagine where the church would have been if those two apostles had not been freed from their prison shackles by the midnight visit from God's angel? Can you imagine where the church would have been if Saul of Tarsus had been allowed to continue to snuff out believers in Damascus and maybe on to Antioch, and maybe instead of being a missionary and a preacher of the gospel, he was a missionary and a persecutor of the gospel as far as Rome and as far as the boats could take him. Could you imagine what would have become of the church? What if murderous Nero sent his, his centurions down into the catacombs to flush out the Christian plague in the empire? What if the Ottoman Empire had been able to conquer all of Europe and not just the eastern portion? What if all the predictions of the 19th century were correct and as science began to answer more and more of our questions about life, well, modern man just realized that we don't have much need for this God of the Bible anymore. One older commentator said it this way. He said a thousand, a thousandth, that's a hard word, a thousandth part of the deadly hostility which has been manifested against the church of God would have exterminated any other institution ever upon earth. And I think he's right. Just a fraction. If nature would have taken its course, but can you imagine if things had been different? What if the Lord had not been for his people? Can you contemplate all of the decision points throughout history where the church stood like a barefoot peasant on some sandy beach somewhere, looking at the seashells while the tidal wave of opposition mounted against her and threatened to wipe her off the map of humanity? What if the Lord had not been for his people? Then again, what if the Lord had not been on your side? What if the Lord had not called you by his gospel? What if the Lord had not sent his son to take the guilt and the shame that was rightly yours and to offer you forgiveness? What if the Lord had not spoken repentance and faith and promise into your soul by his spirit? Can you imagine where you would be today if the Lord had not been for you? Can you imagine what life would look like? I think some of you can, because you lived in that life for a very long time. Maybe if the Lord had not been for you, maybe the sorrows of this fractured world long ago would have driven you to despair and self-destruction. Maybe instead of, of the cycle that believers often go through, that cycle of sin and shame and repentance, maybe it would have been different because you would have had all the sin and none of the shame. None of the guardrails, the warning signs to stop you. None of the Holy Spirit to say you're engaging in something that's not good for you and the people around you. And maybe your, your descent into self-indulgence would have become a whirlpool and it would have sucked you and your family and your entire life under the surface. Maybe that's what it would have happened. 
if the Lord had not been for you. Maybe your anger would have been unquenchable. Maybe your lust would have been unstoppable. Maybe your gossip and your lies would have been indecipherable even to you. Then again, maybe it would have been worse if the Lord had not been on your side. What if? What if you lived a nice, quiet, contented life and you had the job of your dreams and you had the children you always wanted and you had the house that made everyone else in your neighborhood envious? What if you had plenty of spare time to run 10Ks for charity and to coach Little League Baseball? What if you had all the things that you ever wanted? What if all of it was yours and yet the Lord was not on your side? What if he'd never called you? What if your life in this world was so fulfilling and so comfortable that you never for a moment stopped to consider that when you breathe your final breath, you will stand before the God who who made and judges your eternal soul. The God who judges men and women by their words and their actions and their desires. Ultimately, by their union to Christ? What if you could gain the whole world and lose your soul? What if God had not been for you? That's the question of this psalm. If the Lord had not been on our side, the flood would have swept us away. And don't look away too quickly from the picture. Don't be afraid to consider the image of what you might have become Or what might have happened to you? Apart from the Lord, we all face destruction. But, and here's our second point. But the help of the Lord brings deliverance. The help of the Lord brings deliverance. So you see that verse 6 is an intrusion to the logic of what if. It is an interruption to all that David and the psalmists and and, and all the Israelites have been singing together. Verse 6 turns us from the question of what might have been to the question of what actually is. And here's what's true. God is for his people. God is on their side. God works deliverance when no one else can save. And he burst into worship. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Do you hear what an understatement that is? It doesn't tell us what God has done. It's not a positive thing. It's simply a negative promise. Do you know the negative promises of the Bible? Sometimes the sweetest words are in telling us what God will not do. He will not abandon you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. God is for his people. He has not given us as prey to their teeth. And you know what that means. It means despite all the threats that are coming against us, despite the jaws that are open to receive us, despite the floodwaters that are coming against us, God actually stands above those things and has control over them. Because they would have snatched us up, but God didn't allow that to happen. He works deliverance for his people. The nation of Israel may have been stuck at the end of the Philistine spear, and the church 
may have been in the grip of pagan persecution and your soul may have been in danger because of your entanglement with sin and the fact that you had no Christian upbringing and you didn't even know the gospel and you were the least likely person ever to respond to a gospel call when it came. But the God who's sovereign, the God of life and creation has not allowed his people to be swallowed down, snatched up, or swept away. There's a net, he says, verse 7. It's a trap. It's, it's laid secretly where the critters can't see it. And it's laid with a little bit of bait, and it's loaded with some sort of spring or some kind of trap mechanism. And then comes a bird, a warbler, a, a finch, something something small that you'd take home and put in a cage or, or something a little bit bigger that you would take home and put in a sandwich. Some little bird comes and the trap is set and the trap clamps shut and the bird is caught fast. And it's a sad situation. It's a terrible sight, actually, because there's nobody there. Not even the fowler. He's gone away. Because whatever is small enough to get caught in this trap can't get out on its own, and so it will be there just waiting for its demise whenever he comes back, and so he'll come and, and check the trap. And in the meantime, inside of that cage, the bird's heart is throbbing. It's so small that it has only one form of self-defense. If it's threatened, it flies away. That's it. That's all it's got. And if only it could fly away now, but the trap... The trap is designed so that the more the bird flaps its wings, the tighter it gets, the more deadly that trap, the more sure its fate. And what that little bird needs is somebody with compassion, somebody with the dexterity to come and, and release the cords that are entangling and, and strangling the life from its frail little lungs. Blessed be the Lord, says David. Blessed be the Lord who has interrupted our destruction. Verse 7, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. We have escaped, and it's the history of God's people. Apart from the Lord, his people face destruction. But the help of the Lord brings deliverance. And just as it was for Israel, and just as it has been for the church, so now it is for each of God's individual children. Our Lord has taken that deliverance and he has spread it across the record of humanity so that everybody can see it. Our God is the warrior who made a highway of escape through the midst of those waters. And he led his people through under cloud and flame. He led them into the promised land where they drove out nations more and mightier. He saved his people again and again. Our God is the king who builds his church despite the opposition of nations and philosophies and the gates of hell. Our God is the creator who calls non-existence into existence. Who calls the dead to new life. He's the one who calls sinners to come to Jesus. Isn't that the story of God's intrusion into your life, dear Christian? Here in Psalm 124, verse 6, it says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Paul said the same thing, different words. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. The divine interruption, but God. While you were dead in your sin and in the trespasses, the ways in which you once walked, according to the prince of the power of the air, together with the rest of creation, those that we were, we were children of wrath like the, me- the rest of mankind. But God, says Paul, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because he's on the side of his people, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And blessed be the Lord who has not given us up. Blessed be the Lord who brings deliverance to his people. I know that doesn't mean that your life with Jesus is going to be easy. This is not a promise that that the things that you fear in this world could never happen to you. But it does mean that the God of the gospel is for his people. And if God be for us, who could be against us? It means that with the Lord on our side, our souls are safe. Notice what it doesn't say. The way that we often take it is to take something like this and we say, are you on the Lord's side? And that's a good question that we often ought to ask. We have all the different ways of of arranging those things and saying, well, I know I'm on the Lord's side if I prayed that prayer, if I did that thing, if I hung out with these people, if I was raised in this church, if I was a part of that family. I know I'm on the Lord if I have. That's not the question here. The question is, whose side is the Lord on? Whom has he chosen? Whom is he for? He has a people that he's called to himself. And for those whom the Lord loves, he he saves them and he directs them and they're safe in his hand. Not always comfortable. Not always delivered from every pain and every fear of this life, but they're safe. One of the little known facts about John Calvin is is just how devoted he was to the task of foreign missions. In fact, there is still floating around in much of Christendom, there is this, this sticky little stereotype that if you happen to be a Calvinist, that means that you are necessarily allergic to evangelism. And that stereotype actually is false, of course. In recent years, in the last 20 years or so, uh, historians have uncovered evidence that together with his cohorts, in the last 10 years of his life, Calvin helped to train pastors and to send them out. And, and together with some of these other agencies and, and other boards, he helped to establish more than 2,000 underground French Protestant churches in 10 years. They also planted a church in Brazil, by the way, about as far away as you could imagine from Geneva at the time. Now, it's taken us so long to find all these things, to uncover the facts, because in Geneva, the data was intentionally buried. In the 16th century, it was a pretty perilous thing to be a Protestant in France. Far more perilous to be a teacher of Protestant doctrines and a preacher of of a small underground church. And so they did what we do now. When we send people into closed countries where we know there's persecution, we we leave the data a little bit light. We say, we know this person and they're in this continent, but we never say where. And, And we leave it a little bit vague, intentionally vague, And it was for the sake of those who were going into the mission field. And yet the records remain. They're they're tucked away there in in the archives at Geneva. They're deliberately obscured. And we have have stories that have come down to us remaining of widows and children, of martyred Protestant pastors 
who returned to Geneva after their husbands were killed, still with their husbands' blood on their clothes. And they gathered their families and they came back to be cared for by the church in Geneva. We have letters from Calvin written to imprisoned pastors awaiting execution. In 1553, he wrote to five young men, We who are here in Geneva shall do our duty in praying that God may, by the comfort of his spirit, sweeten all that is bitter to the flesh. That he may absorb your spirits in himself, that that in contemplating the heavenly crown, you may be ready without regret to leave all that belongs to this world. Those are the kinds of records we have of Calvin's missionary activity. It's It's a hidden witness to the hazards of discipleship at that time. But alongside that record, we also have the record of the worship of the French Protestant Church. We have their liturgy, the elements of worship that were repeated every time they gathered together to hear the word of God and to come to his table. We have their liturgy, and wherever those believers gathered together, they always began worship with the same verse, the same call to worship. Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth, and all God's people say, Our help is in the name of the Lord, and all God's people say, Can you imagine what it was like in the 16th century to sit or to stand and to say amen to that and to believe it? Can you imagine what it was like for those widows who had walked with Jesus through the fire and the flood? and come out on the other side with little more than their lives? Can you imagine what it was like for those pastors who lived on the verge of capture and execution at any moment? Can you imagine what it meant to those Christians to look through God's history and to know that the God of the gospel delivers his people from destruction? Dear believer, can you imagine what it's like today? Knowing all that you're facing, knowing all that you've been through, knowing all the near misses that God has worked in your life, knowing all of the promises. Can you imagine what it is to be a Christian and to say amen to that and to know that it's true, to know that God is for you because of his son that he gave? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord, we thank you that you are our help. You are our stay. You are our security in this life and far beyond. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for giving your Spirit to be the guarantee of our inheritance together with all those who are yours that we should be able to call you Father and to know that you're for us, to know that you've laid our sin on our substitute. Oh, thank you for your history with your church and with us. Help us to trust you and know you and to know that you're for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.